This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Defense Department wants to increase its defenses against cyber attacks for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. The Naval Air Systems Command has released a challenge to the public for information on developing and integrating technology solutions to increase cyber resilience. The command says that defending against advanced cyber threats is critical for all military systems. There's an increase in the number of companies required to get assessed by the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification System, or CMMC. Federal News Network reports that the Defense Department has removed an aspect of CMMC that would have exempted 40,000 companies from the assessment. This means that 80,000 defense contractors will require third-party assessments. The White House has announced that 10 million U.S. households have enrolled in the Affordable Connectivity Program. That's the nation's largest ever affordability program for broadband access. The program falls under the bipartisan infrastructure law, in part supporting access to broadband for millions of Americans. Under the program, low-income households can receive a monthly discount for Internet services. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology is working to enhance veteran experience on the customer end. Todd Simpson is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps at the VA's Office of Information and Technology. Todd, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Can you start by just giving us a simple definition of DevSecOps and what its benefits are? So uh, DevSecOps means two things to me at the VA. Um, First and foremost, DevSecOps is uh, a set of software development practices and and, um, and the principles that kind of guide us in the delivery of our our development practices. But DevSecOps is also the name of my organization. It's, uh, and and it's very specific, it's development, um, security and operations. Um, And it's a collective, um, uniform organization that's comprised of um, developers, uh, portfolios, um, and all the product lines that are in, inside those portfolios, a help desk, end user support, um, the engineering component, and the network components um, that, that support all of the underlying uh, technologies. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a collective organization that delivers DevSecOps. How does that office of DevSecOps and the benefits that you get from that software, those software principles, actually trickle down to the end user, the veteran? So bringing everything um, together into one house um, kind of allowed us to build stronger relationships um, with our customers. Uh, We we implemented, as I said, we have these portfolios. We have five portfolios and, and 33 product lines. And the DevSecOps um, the products that we develop all flow through those portfolios. And those portfolios are customized around our specific customers. So we get closer to um, their needs. And, um, and once when we're actually rendering um, deliverables, 
Um, and it, it, it allows us to do better service transition so that when we do a release um, in one of our portfolios, that release is communicated across the whole of the organization. And DevSecOps at the VA is about 90% of the FTEs and the budget. It's uh, just over $4 billion in, in spend under um, the umbrella of DevSecOps. So when I talk about delivering end-to-end -end services and service transition, it really does encompass um, most of what we do in IT at VA. Um, and and again, I can't I can't underscore enough that connected tissue to where we do a release and then um, our our end user support people that are um, kind of the boots on the ground are watchful for um, anomalies that may be traced back to uh, an epic or a feature that was released over the weekend. So being mindful that they can do um, quicker cause and effect analysis, get the 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 ticket triaged. Uh, get the notification out to um, to the end user community, and and then we can start um, the resolution process that much quicker. You know, Todd, I wonder what's involved in switching from the old way or the traditional way of doing software development to the DevSecOps way, especially in a large organization like the VA. Is it mostly a technical switch, or is it really a cultural switch? It, it, it's a mix of both, and and the the emphasis is really, I think, on moving from that. Pro, uh, that project to a product focus. And, um, and it's also about implementing the right technologies to support that, that move from, I, I think, a traditional waterfall approach to a more agile approach. And, um, and that is one of the, the, the tenets of how we operate. We do scaled agile. Uh, we do our releases in program increment planning sessions. We prioritize um, the, the, the features that we release around the, the budget and, and the customer's needs. Um, so we have that connectivity back to the customer, uh, but we're not typically following a scheduled pattern of release or an integrated master schedule. And, and culturally, I think that is the biggest shift where we, we don't just have a big pool of project managers that we assign projects to. Everything is, um, is pretty much um, in lanes that are dedicated um, to delivering um, to the customers. And, and, uh, and, and I'll just say that um, from, a, um, from a transformative standpoint, I think that the, the realignment of the DevSecOps organization was, it was definitely the largest reorganization that I've ever been a part of. Um, but when I arrived at uh, the VA some 20 months ago, uh, the, um, the pillars that I articulated in development, security and operations were, um, they were siloed um, and it was only DevSecOps in name. Um, so I spent most of 2021 bringing the organization under a holistic umbrella um, and, and, and really kind of um, cementing that structure. And that was a cultural shift, um, like nothing that I've been through before. Um, but we, we complement the, um, the cultural shift with lots of engagements. Um, we have monthly DevSecOps days. I have uh, monthly town halls. I have a, an office hour session um, with all of my staff, some um, 7,000 FTEs and another 7,000 contractors. Um, and, and not everybody attends all, all these meetings, obviously, um, but they're open to everyone. And, and I, I just operate under a mode of transparency so that everybody understands what we're trying to do, 
um, the vision and um, how we intend to get there. And I try to um, involve everybody in that journey. All right. Well, Todd, I appreciate you being on the program and uh, joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming next, making sure contractors are meeting cyber requirements to protect sensitive defense information. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the latest from the CMMC's accreditation body. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Last November, the Defense Department released CMMC 2.0. It's the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification System. The purpose is to make sure contractors are meeting certain cybersecurity requirements to protect sensitive information. Matthew Travis is the CEO of the CMMC Accreditation Body, which is responsible for operationalizing assessments and training in the defense contractor community. Matt, welcome to the program. Mimi, good to be with you. So what do you think of CMMC 2.0? Is it going to do what the DOD needs it to do? Well, I think the department certainly accomplished what they set out to do, which is take what was CMMC 1.0 and, and streamline it to make it more accessible, uh, but also more adoptable. And so we removed some of the, the extra standards that were custom to CMMC, and now it's aligned directly to the NIST standard 800-171 and 172. I think that's going to make it easier for, for, for DIB companies to uh, attain the standard. Uh, and they also wanted to reduce the cost, and some of the measures they've taken in 2.0 should, should ease the cost burden a bit, especially with small businesses. Uh, CMMC 2.0 reaffirmed our role as the exclusive partner to implement CMMC, so we appreciated that. And we will continue to work to instill as much trust and confidence in the CMMC ecosystem as we possibly can. So what has the reaction been in the contractor community to it? Well, one, they were happy to see a definitive way forward because 2021 involved a lot of waiting around as the, the Pentagon went into its internal conclave. When the white smoke finally came out, we saw that there was a clear path forward and, and some of the rumors about was CMMC still going to happen were, were clearly put to rest and the department uh, clearly laid out the path forward. And so there's clarity now of what's going to be expected and there's a way forward, even with rulemaking going to be taking uh, you know, a little while to finish. Uh, we're going to be getting started here soon. So there's assessments, there's three levels, and there's sometimes self-assessments, which seem to be pretty easy, but then you have to actually get an assessor to do your assessment for you. How does that work? Exactly, so we went from five levels to three in the maturity model, and that first level uh, only requires those companies to self-attest. Now it's, it's self-attestation with teeth, so it's gotta be a, a corporate officer, it can't be some mid-level IT uh, manager who does that, and certainly, uh, we want to push companies to go ahead and get certified and, and don't rely on self-attestation. It's a good insurance policy to have someone else look at that. Uh, in terms of the rest of the steps, that's where the third-party assessors come in. And uh, companies need to prepare for those assessments. It's not as if you can just sign, for, sign up for one and get assessed. There's preparation to implement uh, the CMMC standards and make sure you're ready to be assessed. So how do you become a third-party assessor? What's the process for that? So the past year, we've been uh, signing up companies who are in the conformance uh, assessment or conformance uh, uh, assurance business to be CMMC third-party assessment organizations or C3PAOs. We've got uh, nearly 400 in the queue. Now, they've got to be assessed themselves to CMMC standards before they're authorized into the marketplace. We have six, And you do that? And we do that. Okay. DoD, DOD assesses them, but we do all the other requirements. We do the background checks, we do, we do the interviews, and ultimately we're the ones authorizing them to be C3PAOs. 
And what's the first step for somebody that says, I want to be one of those? To apply, our website, cmmcab.org, there's uh, applications for all the different roles in the ecosystem, from those C3PAOs to individuals who want to be assessors or instructors, uh, as well as the companies that want to train CMMC or develop CMMC educational materials. I was going to ask you if an individual can, can do this or it has to be a company. Mimi, that's the biggest uh, demand signal we hope to, to respond to in that. We've got a framework set out with national test administrators through Scantron. We've got training providers teaching CMMC classes. We have the publishers who are developing the CMMC content. We need Americans who want to get into cybersecurity to become CMMC assessors. And this is actually a great entry point to be get, to getting into to cybersecurity. I think there's a myth that you have to be a computer science major or, or code writer to get into cyber. Being a CMMC assessor, you need some technical knowledge, but it's a great way to get into cybersecurity. And so we, we hope that Americans respond to that. It's a great full-time job. It'd be a great side hustle. It's a flexible profession to be a CMMC assessor. So are there going to be enough assessors out there to meet the need? Well, we, we certainly expect there to be. Once we fully roll out uh, the, the program, classes have just started now for the entry level of the assessor profession. And we'll be hearing and seeing a promotional campaign from the accreditation body uh, encouraging Americans to consider becoming CMMC assessors. So what's the most important thing a defense contractor needs to know about the CMMC process? One, that it's happening. It is moving forward. It's for it, real. It, it's for real. <laughs> and there's never too early to start preparing for it. You know, I, I'll say that the cyber threat actors, and I saw this when I was at CISA, they're not waiting for the rulemaking process to finish. The department has recognized the investment that the defense sector has already made, and so there's a voluntary interim period where CMMC certifications will be available, not required by DOD contracts, and it's a great time for, for companies to go ahead and get started. Don't wait for the requirement to show up in your contract. Start preparing now. There's a whole host of consultants that we register that can help you get ready, and then ultimately here, hopefully in a few months, we'll actually have assessments commencing. You say, you know, don't wait, get started now, but do we know what the timeline is? Are, are there deadlines out there yet? There aren't deadlines. The rulemaking can take anywhere from you know the six months to a year or more. That's the, the vagaries of the federal rulemaking process we won't get into. But as I mentioned, the Pentagon's going to allow voluntary assessments. And those certifications are as real as the mandatory ones. We expect those to start here a little bit later this year. All right. Well, Matthew, thank you very much for being with us. Mimi, great to be with you. Thank you. Up next, will 5G wireless make airplanes fall out of the sky? Still ahead on Government Matters, addressing concerns about interference to aviation from the new technology. We'll be right back. As AT&T and Verizon continue to roll out their 5G wireless technology, the FAA and airlines have raised concerns over the C-band spectrum interfering with radio altimeters used in automated aircraft landings. Tom Wheeler was the chairman of the FCC and is currently a visiting fellow at Brookings Institution. Tom, welcome to the program. Hello, Mimi. How are you? You wrote an op-ed which is titled, Will 5G Mean Airplanes Falling from the Sky? Will it? No. Okay, there we go. <laughs> you know, what we're doing, we're, we're talking about this, this come um, temp flying tea, if you, but since we're talking here about government matters, this is an example of how 
government matters and how it is important to actually govern rather than go through the motions or talk about governing. And I'll give you the specific example here. What, what this proves is during the Trump administration, we had a situation where the Federal Aviation Administration was aware of what was going on at the Federal Communications Commission, had several years advanced no notice, could have acted, and didn't. Then we had the Federal Communications Commission, who did all the right things on science, but then failed to consider the consequences of those correct RF decisions. And then the appeal was made by the FAA to the Trump White House, where these kinds of interagency disputes ultimately have to get resolved. And it was December 2020, and the Trump White House was more concerned with protecting the big lie so, than Tom, Tom, what dealing you, with the issue. You see this as a failure of federal leadership then. So what needs Correct. to happen? Is this, does this need to come from the White House, from the FCC? What's going on here? Well, the great thing is that, that the Biden administration was handed this hot potato when they walked in and they stepped up and did what the White House should have done years ago, you know, in 2020 with the, during the Trump administration. And they brought everybody together. They banged some heads together. They got resolution. And now the FAA is, is doing a couple of things. One, they're saying that about 90% of the altimeters um, are now uh, uh, safe and can be used uh, in this environment. Okay, but, um, but you're saying 90%, that leaves 10% that could- yeah, but let me, but, but, oh, absolutely. But let me go back here. The, the fascinating thing is that wasn't done previously. You know, there are no standards for altimeters and there was no survey of what the effect would be. It could have been done long before this tempest in a teapot started. But to your question, yes, there's 10% of altimeters that are there now. That goes to the consequences of the decision-making of the Trump FCC. All right, so what so, needs so, to, to but, happen to make sure that those altimeters can coexist safely with uh, 5G? Well, I think that what the Trump FCC should have done is they paid the uh, satellite companies whose spectrum they were repurposing for the pain and suffering and new equipment that was necessary. And had they considered the consequences of that move, they would have used the $81 billion that was collected from wireless companies to fix, to pay, to fix altimeters. And that's where we are right now. Altimeters have to be fixed. The companies have appropriately um, engaged, at, and again, at the request of the Biden administration, have lowered their service levels around airports so as to not trigger any interference, but that's not a long-term solution. The long-term solution is you got to fix altimeters that weren't adequate in the first place. So, Tom, I'm not calling you old, but I know you've been in the wireless telecom business a really long time. Have you seen something like this happen before in the past? 
Yes, I mean we've this is a this is a situation that is not unusual when you move into new spectrum. I mean, I remember the days when 3G was being introduced, and you do too, Mimi. Um, that when 3G was being introduced, and and it was interfering with electric wheelchairs. Um, I remember when 4G was being introduced, and it was uh, interfering with hearing aids. Um, I remember when they were interfering with pacemakers. You want to talk about a life and death kind of situation? Let's talk about pacemakers. So, Those but were Tom, all solvable, it, and we were able to solve them, and we can solve these. So not to, not to cut you off, but, I mean, what needs to be done now so that we don't have a similar problem with 6G? Well, the government agencies need to be talking to each other. <laughs> That's the start. You know, we, that, that was where the whole thing fell apart. Um, and, and we know the 6G is coming. Um, we need to be considering the, the consequences of what that is. You know, so let's, let's back up. There is a standard for 5G, just like there'll be a standard for 6G. There was no standard for altimeters. You know, it is, it is naive to, cons to, to, to believe that in these days, um, you can operate in uh, the radio frequency spectrum and not have some kind of standard for what those operations are. But that's what airplanes were doing. All right. Amazing. Well, well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. I guess we'll see what happens with 6G. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach 
to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.